This is The Dish, the official podcast of the National Reconnaissance Office, brought to you by the NRO's Office of Public Affairs. Hello, and welcome to the National Reconnaissance Office podcast, The Dish. I'm Sam Mackin, representing NAPAN, the NRO's Asian Pacific American Network and AAPI-focused employee resource group. NAPAN's mission at the NRO is to provide networking, mentoring, training, and education opportunities for employees, as well as help employees engage in partnerships across the organization and the IC. Today, I'm joined by Mr. Sam Araki. Mr. Araki began his 50-year career in the national security space arena at the beginning of the Cold War. After receiving his bachelor and master's of science degrees in mechanical engineering from Stanford University, Mr. Araki went to work as a system engineer at Lockheed Missiles in Space in Sunnyvale, California. During his tenure with Lockheed, Mr. Araki pioneered the development of the Agena spacecraft, the launch vehicle on the upper stage camera platform for Corona, the first imagery satellite. The NRO and other government agencies benefited from Corona's intel derived from over 400, 500 missions from 1960 to 1972. In 2004, NRO recognized Mr. Araki as an NRO pioneer, the highest honor in the field of reconnaissance for his accomplishments on the Agena program. Pioneers are individuals whose contributions have changed the direction and scope of the reconnaissance discipline and its practice. Mr. Araki's accomplishments throughout his distinguished career are too too numerous to detail here, but a few in which he played a key role are MILSTAR, the first global secure digital communication satellite system with onboard routers and satellite-to-satellite crosslinks, Iridium, Motorola's first all-space cell phone communication network, and the Hubble Space Telescope, an orbiting observatory that has been operating since 1990 and has allowed scientists and citizens to view the evolution of the universe. We are proud to host Mr. Araki during the Asian, American, and Pacific Islander Heritage Month, As Mr. Araki rose to the highest levels of national security space, he confronted anti-Asian and anti-Japanese bias, beginning with his family's relocation to a Japanese internment camp shortly after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Members of NAPAN and the broader NRO workforce have generated questions on how this early life experience would later shape his career and life. Mr. Araki, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Uh, I really appreciate uh, participating in this event today. I think uh, what you're doing with the Asian American uh, uh, group here is uh, very, uh, very, very good, and I really appreciate uh, participating in this event. Thank you. All right, sir. Well, let's start with your early years. After the bombing of Pearl Harbor, you and your family were removed from your home in California to the Poston internment camp in Arizona. You were 10 years old at the time, and I'd like to hear more about how that early experience shaped your views on racism towards Asians today. The hate crimes uh, against uh, Asians are um, something that has occurred throughout history. It's uh, uh, what is occurring today, again, is uh, similar to some of the events. But there's always an event that that steers... uh, the prejudice. When World War II started, and even before the start of World War II, uh, there was a a lot of fear introduced to the public of what the Japanese Americans might do if there was an attack in this country. 
And sure enough, when Pearl Harbor happened, the worst of the imagination was stirred up in the minds of the people. And uh, that's what led to President Roosevelt taking action to uh, move all the Japanese Americans from the West Coast into concentration camps. It is something that happens um, over and over again. It, it, it doesn't quite go away. Uh, the current Biden administration, I think, has taken probably a very key effort, probably the strongest effort, to counter prejudice. And he has put in more Asian Americans and more black Americans into the administration than any other president in the past. So I think he is going going through a great period of trying to solve a problem maybe over the long term now because with these leadership positions they will have a last a more lasting impact on how various nationalities could fit together, integrate together, and create an America that is stronger. So that's that's my thought here. Thank you. Um, um, I was reading up before this interview, and you said previously that your experiences in an internment camp during the war played a role in learning to work cooperatively and understand mediation. Could you elaborate on this statement, and how did that influence some of your decisions throughout your career? Well, one of the things that um, I want to say about uh, as an early experience, I was uh, basically when I went into camp, I was nine years old. And when you're at that age, uh, you're really very adaptive to whatever environment you get put into as long as your parents are with you and the parents are protecting you. And uh, all of us at that age, I think, uh, felt threatened, scared, but at the same time, uh, we saw uh, the whole Japanese-American group being put into camp. And uh, as a nine-year-old, I think we tend to adjust to a, a very harsh environment, but at the same time, adjust much, much better than the adults. My parents are the ones that my parents and that generation are the ones that really suffered the most because they suffered because they lost everything uh, from their belongings to if they had property, they lost their property. And uh, as a result of that, uh, it was a huge setback. And not only that, but camp life for the adults were just really, really, really bad. So, but on the other hand, I think uh, the Japanese Americans, having settled in camp, realized 
that they have to make life for themselves better. And the only way to do that is to build the community like you build a city, in which that's exactly what the Japanese Americans did on their own with whatever resources they can get from the government and uh, build a community just like any other community would function. And it was built from scratch. And for three years, we lived in an environment of a growing city, even though it was very modest in, on the desert. Uh, but on the other hand, as a young adult, young young boy growing up, it was an, it was an experience of its own, and it it really showed how teamwork, uh, in the most adverse conditions, teamwork, uh, ability to work hard, uh, can make life uh, as as most bearable and. In in uh, in a way which was uh, an accomplishment for the group. So those are my thoughts here. You and your family were on the run from the FBI for several months to avoid the internment camps. Uh, did you understand what was happening, and how did your parents explain that situation to you? Well, what what happened here is um, it's all built on built on fear. Um, my father. Uh, was a strong supporter of martial arts. And Kendo was one of the martial arts like Judo. And um, all, all of the martial arts leaders were considered the enemy of the state. Uh, because at that time, martial arts was feared as the weapon that can uh, basically beat the Americans. And it was all based on fear um, because martial arts was as an art, not not a war fighting system. But that didn't matter. That's, that was the fear that was established. So uh, we, so as a young young boy, I understood that because because um, because of my father's interest in martial arts, I understood martial arts. Um, so, um, uh, the, uh, what, what, uh, really basically happened here was my father was on the run with the rest of the, of the members of the, of the, of the martial art uh, group. And we all, all my father's whole group, uh, banded together to basically try to run, run away from the FBI because they were because we were all, we decided to be on the move continuously. So we moved uh, to Reedley, and uh, we moved basically almost every month. And during that time period, uh, we basically my father basically decided the best way to hide was uh, to go into a farmer in Central California, Japanese farm, Japanese American farmer, and pitched the tent in the barn. So that's how we lived for six months before we went into camp. So that's the kind of life that we led during that time period. 
Wow, with that as a background then, how did you grow up without harboring any bitterness towards you and your family's treatment and continue on to work towards the security of our nation? Well, let me uh, give you a little bit of uh, background as to how all this happened. Um, when I came out of camp, I had a hard time uh, settling down because of the, all the emotional periods that I had. Uh, and, and my study habits were very poor because in my whole grammar school period at that time was in camp. And we had a, an educational program, but it was very, very um, rudimentary because the system, there was no system set up to do any rigorous teaching, and and we didn't have any real qualified teachers. So when I went, when I graduated, from, I I did very poorly in high school, and so I got into San Jose State. Uh, basically uh, on trial and uh, made up of a, a lot of the English and math and physics and chemistry background uh, because I wanted to see if I can get into engineering, and I did. So when I got enough of a, enough good grades, uh, my father really wanted me to go to Stanford because the person that really helped him during the war was uh, a Stanford graduate, and uh, he really looked up to this person because he is the one that really helped him stay financially able to continue to keep his farm. He was one of the few individuals that was able to accomplish that during the war, and it was all because of the help he achieved from this one individual. And uh, so as a result of that, I decided that uh, when, he, when, when when I went to Stanford, I was... Um, uh, one or the only Asian American in my mechanical engineering class, and uh, all the way through the, the time period from uh, undergraduate to undergraduate programs. So when I graduated, uh, I was looked upon being a graduate from a white school, I think I got looked upon as equal to white. So what what really happened was the school, the name of the school, the fact that you graduated from there with, with an advanced degree, I think gave me the credentials to give be able to start in a field where uh, both at the at Lockheed was a startup. We were a startup, and we I was I was probably the only I can't remember well, but I 
believe I was probably one of the few, maybe one of the only uh, Japanese Americans. All it was an all white workforce, and the same thing at the NRO. Uh, the NRO workforce was basically all white, and the only person there that was was Asian was Dr. Bob Naka who was the deputy DNRO. So he and I were one of the few agents at, at the NRO at that time. So that's, I think, uh, the way I got accepted, and I think that's the way uh, Bob Naka got accepted. Thank you very much for that. Um, you worked with NRO's Center for the Study of National Reconnaissance to publish an article in June 2020. Uh, the article was titled The Four C-1000, Seven Tenets for the 21st Century, The Innovation Secret at the National Reconnaissance Office in Silicon Valley. Uh, that publication actually is a, currently available on the NRO.gov website, which uh, we'll provide a link for the podcast listeners later. Four uh, C-1000, Seven Tenets, or Seven Tenets, uh, was an NRO management philosophy during the Cold War that urged an environment of creativity and innovation. And the article studies four imagery reconnaissance programs as examples. In the article, you state that short delivery timelines are key to success, and one of the early imagery programs required only 30 months to complete. Um, can you describe the tolerance for risk during the early days of the NRO and your confidence level that rapid development would not compromise mission success? Well, let me um, set the stage by saying the following. Um, the whole corona program, as well as the technology state race uh, at MIT and Stanford, was kicked off by President Eisenhower. And the, the nation was at threat. Um, when the Soviet Union launched Sputnik. Sputnik was a satellite program that the U.S. had absolutely zero knowledge. Think back at that time. There were no textbooks on space, science, or engineering, or technology. There was no engineering method known at that time. And words like vacuum, uh, radiation, uh, were totally unknown. And so President Eisenhower said, we've got to break out, move fast, and we've got to figure out a way to catch up. And he took the model of the U-2 program where CIA was given the job to run the program. And um, the job was given to Kelly Johnson at Skunk Works at Lockheed, which had the accomplishment of building a U-2 
from scratch and flying it in eight months. And uh, if you think about the U-2 today, it broke all the rules that we have today to build it. It's, it's got paper-thin wings. You wouldn't, today, you would never pass the safety requirement for that paper-thin wing. If you flew at uh, altitude of 70,000 feet, uh, very close to space, had to build a suit, a precious suit, just like an astronaut suit, to fly at that altitude. So it did some very risky things, but it had to be done to get above the SAM attack, missile attack. And it never did. It got shot down, as you recall. So under that kind of environment, uh, President Eisenhower said, I'm going to give you nine months. Uh, you two was done in eight months. I'm going to give you nine months to go operational. Let's go do it. And we'll make sure that you get all the hardware necessary, and we'll give you the production line that's going on from on, on Atlas and Thor, which were ICBMs and IRBMs, and also Titan. Uh, we'll give you whatever you want out of there and, and go make it work. And so when you talk about risk-taking, you have to take a risk. There was no other choice. Because when you don't know anything, you've got so many unknowns. There is no way you can go to a textbook or a computer program or whatever. In fact, we didn't have computers at that time. We just had slide rules. So under that kind of condition, risk-taking is a must. Now, what happened when the Cold War ended, as you recall, the world looked upon U.S. as the number one superpower, number one in commerce, economy, number one in technology, and number one in military. It was a fused power that projected that superiority. So our country basically transferred the technology to Asia, primarily to China, because China was a, still a very emerging country. So we transferred everything, and not only that, but they stole everything from us. And uh, they built very, very fast, just like we did. They borrowed a, a, the seven, basically they lifted the seven tenants from us and, de and deployed it in China. And in 20 years, in 20 years, they were able to build a GPS constellation, put a internet system in, in operation uh, just like we did with the DARPAnet and into an intranet that we had formed in DOD. They did all of that in 20 years. They built their own reconnaissance satellites. They built their own communication satellites. 
and they basically were on their are on their way to passing us up. In the meantime, our country basically went to sleep, and and so the when when you're in that mode of standing still, you make no changes. So our current generation today has lived in an environment of making no changes because if you make a change, it's too risky. Don't have to because it's good. What we have is good enough. So this is why an F-35 program, which should have been built in five years, operational in five years, went for 20 years. It's an absolute disaster that has taken place by staying flat. That has to change now because China's going to pass us up. And uh, the world has changed. We have to change. Uh, in fact, the Air Force, uh, General Brown, has sensed it, and he has put out a strategy document that says accelerate change or lose. And that's basically the mode that we have to get back into. So if we don't change, in order to change, we're going to have to take risks, have to get into new territory, not only on technology, but new territory on the concept of operation. The threat today is no longer monolithic like the Soviet Union. It is very, very asymmetric. And it's asymmetric because it's not just military threat. It's an economic threat. It's a social threat. It's a cyber threat. It's a space threat. It is a very, very complicated threat now. And we have to figure out a way to get on board encountering that kind of a threat. So that's our challenge today. And this is why we don't take a risk today. We're going to die. That's my parting words to the group here. Actually, that's a, an excellent lead into the next uh, next question, which uh, is, uh, do you have any ideas of how we can continue to use the seven tenets in the larger and more complex bureaucracy of today's federal government? Well, uh, what has to happen is the bureaucracy was put in place to not do anything, keep everything steady. And that bureaucracy has to be removed. And so basically, we're going to have to bring in, and when I say removed, I don't mean the rigor. It's the, the bureaucracy was all put in place to add rigor. And I'm I'm not against rigor. What I'm against is slowing it down. So we have to get rid of the bureaucracy that wants to slow, slow things down. We want to create a system which meets schedule and controls costs and move very fast. So we have to basically set up a new system which is tailored to today's technology. We have computers, 
We have supercomputing capability. We have AI. Uh, we have tools that we've never had before. And Silicon Valley is full of it. In fact, if you look at Silicon Valley's commercial practice, the commercial practice of Silicon Valley is the seven tenets, exactly the same. So my attitude is, let's go back and adopt the seven tenets and get back into a leadership position. Thank you for that. Now, in the context of the Asian Pacific American Heritage Month, what advice would you give those in the NRO workforce concerning career success and advancement? Well, I think the uh, the workforce has to sense this change, and uh, and and of course that sense of change has to be direct, driven top down from the director. So I'm hoping that the NRO director uh, will act just like General Brown is now moving out to act, where the whole workforce has to adjust to a new era. So now your career with Lockheed Martin spanned over 38 years, and it continued long past your retirement as president in 1997. The impact that you have in national reconnaissance is evident by the numerous recognitions you received during your lifetime. What lessons have you learned that you would like to pass on to those just starting their career in the National Reconnaissance Office or in engineering in general? I think um, there's a tremendous opportunity uh, in the NRO because of all the agencies in the defense and intelligence organization, I still believe the NRO is, is still most, most streamlined and operating in a very, very effective way. So I look at uh, the NRO as a as a as a, as still a very lead elite and lead organization. Um, so I think the workforce uh, has made it that, and so I think the NRO workforce is a very still a very spirited group. To this day, you are still passionate about national reconnaissance. So would you help us understand what keeps you going and interested in continuing to educate others about national reconnaissance? I think the whole area of intelligence is is a key area in which the U.S. must maintain leadership. Uh, in fact, reconnaissance today is probably more important now uh, than it was um, the last 20 years, definitely. And so the National Reconnaissance Office, as well as the intelligence community, has to re-gun itself or re-establish uh, itself as the lead organization uh, in the field of both defense and intelligence, because in order to counter the asymmetric threats that we have today, we have to have intelligence that could detect what is really going on, not just in terms of military terms, but also in terms of economic, political, cyber, 
in all forms. So it becomes, Intel becomes a very diversified business. So um, I, I look to the um, NRO to lead in that direction in the future. Okay, I have one final question for you. In regard to your life's work, what would you say is your biggest accomplishment? Well, I think the biggest accomplishment is not my own personal. I think it's teamwork. Um, the success of the Corona program uh, taught me a lot about how teamwork, cooperation made the difference. And the ability to take risks as a team uh, and always feeling confident that we will succeed. Uh, that feeling has stuck with me. Uh, and it was something that I think I treasure. This is why I treasure still participating in the Center for Study of National Reconnaissance, because I, I look at that career that I had with the group over the, what I call the 4C-1000. I, I don't know if a lot of you understand 4C-1000. The NRO lived in a room number 4C-1000 in the Pentagon for 35 years, in which the only identifier of the NRO is 4C1, room 4C1000, because the word NRO was classified. So I carefully chose the title 4C1000 7 tenant because when the NRO became a institution with a huge building, it changed from a skunk works type operation to a what I call today's bureaucracy. So that's how I look at the history here. There was two phases when the NRO was a room number and the NRO became an institution in the building that you live in now. That's interesting. I didn't actually realize that about the 4th C-1000, so thank you for that. Well, Mr. Rocky, thank you so much for your time um, and for your willingness to share your story with us on uh, our episode of The Dish, Behind the Scenes at NRO. Um, do you have any final thoughts for our listeners? Well, I, uh, I really appreciate the fact that you're uh, putting on together the uh, Asian Pacific uh, group together, and I hope to, uh, that you will keep this kind of activity going on very important, and uh, also I look to see some real contributions out of that group because I think uh, we need all of the key talents from all races to make NRO what it is. So, again, thank you for allowing me to participate. Thank you, sir. The NRO provides reconnaissance support to the intelligence community and the Department of Defense and is dedicated to going above and beyond to protect our nation and its citizens.